This is why small business matters from Northumbria University. Supporting small businesses with the Help to Grow Management Programme. Hello and welcome to this episode of Why Small Business Matters. My name's Matt Sutherland and in today's episode we discuss mental health in business and explore the impact that COVID-19 has had on staff wellbeing. Surely, as a nation, if we help business owners with their mental wellbeing and their mindset, we'll have an even more successful economy. That was the voice of Natasha McDonough, founder and CEO of MMC, a research and marketing firm based here in Sunderland. With a marketing career spanning 25 years, she's a go-getter, securing chances to work closely with top entrepreneurs, including Seth Godden of Yahoo, as well as the founders of Staples and Office Depot. More recently, Natasha has established a reputation for being passionate about helping business owners address concerns around their own mental health, work that is underpinned by an annual survey targeting business owners to open up about their own mental health. Work that, of course, doesn't go unnoticed, securing silver in the 2022 Best Britain Women's Awards. It's absolutely lovely to see you, Natasha, and thank you for joining us today. Now, I know you're the type of person who likes to roll up their sleeves and get stuck in. Natasha, tell me about your business, MMC. So MMC, we're MMC Research and Marketing. And we provide insights and research into what organisations, what their customers think, what their stakeholders think, what their competitors think of them. And we get those insights and we produce reports for companies to understand what people think of them. And then we can help them break through barriers, communicate, do their marketing better because we'll help them understand the insights. Natasha, businesses today are bracing themselves for huge change and potentially fairly significant business challenges. What advice would you have for small businesses today to prepare themselves for the upcoming business landscape? Yeah, that's a great question. I would definitely recommend, if where possible, is not to put all your eggs in one basket. So, for example, if you're an organisation that relies heavily on the you know, public sector for your income or a certain type of consumer or a certain type of business sector, whether it's B2B or B2C, think about how you can diversify or how you can have other products that matter to other people. Because if one of those struggles drastically, then you'll struggle drastically. So I think the thing that I've learned over the years and by speaking to other business owners, actually those who have their risks spread out over lots of different sectors or customer types, um, the more resilient they can be. I think my other advice, and I would imagine most small businesses do this anyway, but if there are kind of startups out, out there, is uh, know your numbers. And you have a lot of business owners, um, including myself over the years, who've said, you know, numbers aren't my strength, but you have to make them your strength. You have to learn you have to learn how to put the figures in place it might take you longer but i think that's the most important thing and always have you know spreadsheets that take you to at least another 12 months in advance so you can always see what your runway of cash etc is Natasha has a seriously impressive cv spending time abroad and driving businesses forward in australia the us and in england how did it all start well I left school with a handful of GCSEs and I actually had to move out when I was 17. So I didn't get the chance to go through the usual traditional kind of, you know, A-levels, university route. And I actually just got stuck straight into work. And I was quite lucky in that 
I found my way into a publishing house as an assistant and I literally just took on every job that I was offered and I worked for it was a bit of a wild, crazy entrepreneur at the time, and he was jetting off all over the world, um, selling advertising, pulling a magazine together. And I was quite excited about the prospect of potentially doing that one day. A long story short, I kind of put my hand up when he said he had a bit of a crazy idea to send me on a plane to Germany and sell advertising for a magazine. And if I did it well at that, I would maybe go to Chicago a few weeks later. So I didn't even think about it. It was such a great opportunity for me. I was already writing. I was already pulling magazine ads together. I was kind of coordinating it. It was actually marketing, which I actually didn't realize that was the kind of the basis of learning how to do marketing. Uh, I went out there, sold, you know, five figures worth of advertising. People, there was no recession. People were buying. It was the 90s. It was quite a boom at the time. Um, absolutely loved it. And that organization, which is an independent publishing house, then sold out to Euro Money. So his business sold to Euro Money, and his next idea was to go out to California and start a magazine all around the dot-com bubble. So again, the, the opportunity arose, and I think I was about 26 at the time, 27. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But actually, I've worked since the age of 17, and I'd like to have a year off. I'd like to go and travel. So I said, I'm going to book. And isn't that lovely to have that kind of opportunity in life to say, yeah, I'll join you in Los Angeles, but I'd like to go to Thailand and Australia. So I went off on my journey knowing that when I got to LA, I'd have a job, maybe for a few months. Um, that few months ended up turning into a five-year work visa. So I ended up staying in Los Angeles for, I think, four years in the end. You must have had lots of confidence because you'd found yourself in this kind of accidental marketing role, but you were doing business. You were, you were selling, weren't you? That's a real skill. So you, you've, you've, you've already got, I suppose, a lot of experience under your belt going into Europe. Was this the proposition of going to America just like another trip? You were, it was just about going somewhere else? I had wanted to go to America since I was a little girl. I, that, I, you know, I was a kid of the 80s, so it was, um, you know, everything I watched, everything I was interested in was about America. I always wanted to go. So when I landed in Chicago on my first trip, I was like, yes, <laughs> nothing else matters. So actually then when, yeah, exactly. And when, um, when I got the opportunity to live out there, that was just great. Um, and for me, selling at the time, and probably still is today, I would say I've possibly never sold anything in my life, but I like to have good conversations with people. And I like to see, I like to see them get excited about something that I'm excited about them having, if that makes sense. Which I guess is sales, isn't it, really? But um, I, I learned a lot in America. Um, well, first of all, within, you know, the first year of getting there, the chap, the dot-com bubble burst and the company filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy. So actually there was me and a bunch of Australians that had given up their careers. And it was actually a risk for me because even though I'd had some challenges to get my foot in on the career ladder at a young age, I'd actually built a nice solid role at home in England. So to go out to America, a little bit of imposter syndrome kicked in. I thought, wow, I'm being sponsored as a marketing manager. How about if I get to America and all these really fancy marketing managers in America realize that I don't know marketing? How will that work out? It was fine. I did know marketing, but 
you know, so it was, it was quite a risk, actually. And you all went over and you took the risk. And it was about 12 months then. And then when things, sadly for the business, went went downhill. Yeah. I just thought, well, I'll figure out how to earn money and stay out here because I was having too good a time. So I worked in an, with an advertising agency in Venice Beach. I worked in um, for a fashion retail company doing all their marketing and putting on these massive sample sales. And then I did. I was a celebrity nanny at the weekend. Um, so that was fun too. <laughs> oh, um, so just a few things. And, and it kind of went on for about another three years or so. And actually the variety sounds like it was probably the draw of being there, wasn't it? There was so much to do, marketing during the week, nannying at the weekend. You, you must have been run off your feet. Yeah, it was great though, because when you when you live in Los Angeles, you just embrace that whole lifestyle. So the fitness, the relaxation, the healthy ways of living, um, you know, it was just fantastic. At this time, you've built up over a decade's worth of experience in marketing. So you were, and you've got your confidence that validated and accepted you in the US. Did you also have the opportunity to work with um, any other startups then? Or, or did you leave that at a bit of an arm's length after the business had gone under? No, I, I did actually. The fashion sample sale business was a, was a startup company where they went from literally kitchen table to, you know, a multi-million pound turnover business. Um in Hollywood where they would have hundreds of people coming through the doors all weekend buying kind of, you know, samples of designer gear, but it was all very early internet marketing. So email marketing at the time was pretty modern and revolutionary. There was no social media. So it was all about campaigns. It was all about getting lists, getting people to sign up to lists, doing kind of A-B split testing, that kind of stuff. So it was all basically what I'd learned in England doing brochure, selling advertising via brochures, using different lists and different messages for different people. And it, that's what's so fascinating about marketing today when you see it on social media. It's all going back to that basic split testing, right message to the right audience in the right way. It is. And, and it, what's, what I think is inspiring, though, about your story is that you were you were doing it and you were very much in the fast lane because you had gone from you were a partner who was working on the kitchen table to now a multi-dollar business, million-dollar business. Did that inspire you then? Yeah. Did you, did you, I mean, I just... Or did you just think this was the norm? Well, I was just around a lot of people like that. So the guy that originally got me to America, he was like that. These people that I was working for, they were like that. So I think I've never worked in a large, large organisation where you've got a CEO who's an, an employee. I've only ever worked for entrepreneurs but that's how I saw them then. And I don't see myself as that kind of entrepreneur now that I have a business, but those are the people that I learned my trade from. And I picked the good stuff and left the bad stuff behind. And what was the stuff that you, you took from these people? Because these, I imagine these are people with short attention spans. They're, they're very much wanting everything done yesterday. Um, what were some of the sort of nuggets of information that you took from these people though, when, you were, when you were working for them? To think bigger, to see long-term value in an idea. So I take that forward today. So for example, there might be a project or a concept, which on paper may not look profitable, on paper might look like it's a lot of work for nothing maybe, but actually I, I often look at it as the bigger picture. What could that lead into? Actually, if we did that piece of work, is that in a sector that we've never worked in before that interests us? 
or actually, can we make a difference with this piece of work? And we've taken on a lot of projects like that where I've seen the bigger picture. And I think I learned that from those types of people who dared to think a little bit bigger and maybe just step out of their normal comfort zone. So actually, that's, that's, that's fantastic. So knowing that you've, it may, you may have a project that doesn't sort of land the way it was supposed to, but actually keep chipping away. And actually, it could lead to something that around the corner you never expected. And five years later, it could be something absolutely huge. And I think that's, that's intriguing, isn't it? That's intriguing. And, and I think, um, and it also takes a bit of passion and resilience to keep chipping away at these type of ideas. I think it's about believing in something as well. It's about seeing something and believing that there could be a possibility. And I learned things from working for those types of people where I thought, wow, I I would never either treat someone like that or I'd never have a little tantrum about something in the workplace. And, you know, the 90s, working in the 90s was really different. The early 90s and that was really different because there were... You know, people could get away with stuff that they would just not get away with now. And so, you know, hopefully I'm a more empathetic leader as a result of working for some real tyrants who some of them were were fun and fab and great, you know, party hosts, but actually in um, in reality. But I think the thing I noticed about myself and still still am today to some extent is um, always been a bit of a people pleaser. So I would kind of I would let a lot of that behavior go over my head because I wanted to do a good job. So, you know, it's quite interesting how those types of people can formulate in life. Some of the lessons that you, you've you learned from these people that you, that you actually think, actually, I probably wouldn't want to do that or take that away from you is probably how they deal with people and their employees. And that's something that we'll talk about shortly, but that's something that you're very keen on in your today in your world aren't you yeah. in your work um so you've been in you've been the variety is huge you're in LA you've got a visa for five years is that right what 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 happens um when 9-11 happened uh things was things were quite different for a while I felt quite I felt quite unsettled but then kind of carried on for another year or so I think um I came back to England and I was probably had about a year left or so on my visa and I came back to England for a wedding and um, met my husband today and just, I thought, well, actually, when I was around all my family and friends in England, I started to realise what I was missing and I loved being back in London and the kind of Britishness because actually when I was abroad for that amount of time, I never came home. I did dial up emails, I spoke to people. So I was away, away for a long time. And I, because I was in Los Angeles, I had lots of visitors. So I had some family and friends. Everybody wants to come and stay with you. It was fantastic. So I didn't really need to go home. And when I came home and I, I just felt, I felt like I belonged and I felt like maybe I sh- it was time to come home. So I, I came home and it was a matter it was I found it quite easy to get out there in the workplace because I had had that international experience and I probably undervalued that I didn't actually realize that would be one of the benefits but you know I could go and my first job was as an international marketing manager for the Commonwealth Business Council we were working on big conferences with 600 delegates for um we I worked on business action for Africa alongside the G8 summit stuff like that which I'd I'd probably say a few years before I wouldn't never have even my CV wouldn't have even been looked at or considered 
So I went back into London and absorbed the whole kind of London environment. I worked on some public policy conferences for a number of years. Again, very much getting bums on seats. That's what I used to specialise in for the likes of the British Chambers of Commerce, the Confederation British Industry, CBI, Environment Agency, and companies like that. So I was quite interested in the whole policy arena at that point as well. And did you, when you first came up and you settled in the northeast in Sunderland, were you working for somebody else? Were you looking for work? Yeah, I worked for a London company for a while. I became their director of a northern branch of one of their divisions. And I did that for a while. But actually, you know, having one foot in London and then one foot here didn't make sense. So I then found I'd had a young family at that point. So I found a part time marketing role and I was supporting NRG, which is um, a a big northern recruitment company up here. And that was great because I made loads of friends, made loads of new contacts and kind of understood a little bit about the northeast. Then what struck me instantly was and it still not shocks me, but I still find it strange today, but actually quite nice is that when you're out networking in the Northeast, you could be networking with an engineer, a manufacturer, an accountant, um, gosh, a, a solicitor, a marketing company, all in one room. Whereas wherever I'd worked elsewhere in the world, you stuck to your industry. So if you were in the IT sector or the or the dot com you would be mixing with people in that sector if you were worked in stationary or office supplies which i did for a while everyone you'd speak to was in that sector the northeast was quite unique to me because you i was mixing with i'm mixing with people from across sectors that's really interesting because um when you talked about all the work that you had in LA and how you were working one place during the week and somewhere else at the weekend. So you you had that variety, but you also had different silo groups then. They they weren't interacting with each other. You just had different pockets of networks. You came back to the Northeast. You're now working and supporting Northern Recruitment Group and you are starting to develop your local network in the Northeast, but meeting lots of people from different industries probably for the first time, even though you are really well networked. Mm, yeah, it's, uh, I, I like it still to, di- to this day, though. But what I find happens is you can come to the Northeast and it's hard to then break out and kind of work nationally because it's so comfortable and nice to work with other fellow people that are in the Northeast. Um, after, after that, I then went and worked for a software company. So I kind of got back into that kind of software tech for a while um, and that's when I was made, I was made redundant from there. I think I'd been there for about a few years. And that was probably the moment where I thought, actually, what am I doing working for other people? Right. And now this is about, was this about 2014, 15? And this is where you've been made redundant and you had, I suppose, a bit of a crossroad to either get another job and to maybe talk to some of those networks that you'd, you'd started to create since living in Sunderland or to follow suit from all the people you'd been... <laughs> I suppose, round and influenced by for the sort of um, nearly 20 years before that. So what did you do? At the time, it made more sense to to start a business. I had a small family. All the big marketing jobs were a good travel away, uh, commute. Obviously, hybrid working wasn't even a, word, a phrase then. Um, and... I used my network that I'd made more to actually chat to people, see if they had any projects, anything in mind. And then it just 
bubbled away what I think was what I thought was missing in the market. And I thought, I think there's a gap in the market for a marketing agency that specializes more in the strategy side of things at the time and very much on lead, what, what was, what is called lead generation. So I felt like there were a lot of agencies up here at that time, not so much now, but at that time who could do fantastic branding, um, marketing, promotional material and everything. But I wanted to help organizations understand how they could generate leads and then how they could put them through a lead journey to qualify for sales. And before that, putting a strategy into place. That's, that's how I started really. Um, and then a few years ago, I started to realize that actually those strategies needed a little bit more depth to them. And people were starting to talk about things like buyer personas and um, situational analysis and phrases like that, which I thought needed a little bit more than my research knowledge that just assumed I knew what customers thought. And that's when I kind of thought, actually, this is a real opportunity now to not so much pivot, but to enhance the business to up, to provide more insights and research as well as the marketing strategy. So I guess it was kind of taking that background of all the curiosity I'd had from working with lots of other people over the years and kind of, and then seeing an opportunity to, to define what we actually offered clients. People who listen to this podcast are always interested in that kind of potentially the eureka moment when you know that actually you found something that you think somebody else isn't. This is the gap in the market. Had you just, had you sort of just jotted something down in the, in, on the dining room table of what other people were doing and you could see your gap? And did you also go to the network within Sunderland and sort of bounce the idea of this new agency against them to see what people thought? Yeah, across the northeast, really. Um, at the time, I also didn't know whether it would just be me or whether it would be me and some associates um, or whether it'd be me and staff. I don't think I dared to dream that big at that early on. Um, I'd been made redundant as well. I'd had the, I'd had the stuffing knocked out of me. It really, it really did knock my confidence. And I think, even though I'd been through other kind of personal um, challenges in my life, my career had always been the thing that had gone really well, and that I'd worked hard and had I'd made it work well. So then to be made redundant, I was like, well, hold on, oh, and something like that can happen. I'm out of work. I need to get some money, you know, I've always, I'd always, always gone into a job, to a job, to a job. And even in America, I'd managed to make things work. So that was a challenge. And I think, though, I looked around and I could just see the opportunity. So it was, it was a eureka moment, I think. It was, actually, I can do something a bit different. Um, and then the next kind of eureka moment was actually that saying, I think there's another opportunity to evolve it a little bit further. And and then by that point, I had staff and I had a team of people that I was working with and um, clients that kept on coming back to us. And it felt like a real company <laughs> as opposed to just my idea. And actually hiring, hiring people that could do things that I couldn't do as well, which is part of the fun, I think, about having a business. Why have a business and just hire client clones of you who can just do what you do? The the real fun comes when you hire people who can bring other thoughts and ideas, and and that's where I think the real magic has happened. Right. So you were hiring people that had 
um, skills in different areas then, the areas that you didn't have personally. What what were some of those areas, Natasha, then? What, where were you bringing in looking for people? So first of all, it was the kind of whole area of content. Uh, yes, I can write and, and everything else, but I, want, I didn't want to be sitting writing. I didn't want to be doing that day in, day out. And I, I knew that there were much better content writers out there. So that was an area because that enabled me to scale up and, and take on more clients who needed that kind of help. Um, and then it was more about the research and insights because it is a skill set. Um, and, you know, with all best intentions as a marketing person, I often look at things with an assumption of what I want out of the data because I might have an idea of a campaign. And if I ask questions in that way, I'll get that data. So, you know, I've, it's taken me a few years to actually do research with a very independent um, way of looking at things. So that, again, that was a, that was kind of a skill that I brought in. And, and then kind of being daring enough to look at more complex projects rather than just maybe some sati- customer satisfaction type work. We've, we've actually done some quite, you know, intense policy type work, research work as well. You're listening to Why Small Business Matters. Find out how Northumbria University can help your business thrive through the Help to Grow Management Programme, delivered by leading small business and enterprise experts from Northumbria University with the support of leading figures from industry and experienced entrepreneurs. The programme supports senior managers of small and medium-sized businesses to boost their business's performance, resilience and long-term growth. The 12-week programme is 90% funded by the government and the fee payable by participants is £750 and has been designed to allow participants to complete it alongside full-time work. The in-depth, high-quality curriculum supports you to build your capabilities in leadership, innovation, digital adoption, employee engagement, marketing, responsible business and financial financial management. By the end of the program, you'll develop a business growth plan to help you lead your business to realize its potential. To find out more about the program, the modules, eligibility and fees and delivery dates, go to northumbria.ac.uk slash help to grow. Welcome back to this episode of Why Small Business Matters. Today, we're joined by Natasha McDonough, founder and CEO of MMC Marketing Research based in Sunderland. You'd had this opportunity to either um, go back into employment or to set up your own business. And you took an exceedingly gutsy decision to set up your own business. And of course, you went into marketing because that's where you'd had your success and your expertise. But you saw this opportunity as well to make the business a little bit binary. It was going to be marketing and it was going to be marketing research, but you had to change your mindset. And instead of wanting to look at the data and spin the data in the way in which you can form a campaign, this was now about convincing clients that you were going to be a very sort of um, genuine source that they could give you a contract and you could go out and do research for them and and deliver. Did you stop there? Did you just do the research or were you also having conversations around strategy and what that data could could mean? Yeah, and I think that's what's made us um, stand out in the marketplace maybe. And I think that's what makes it quite exciting is actually we can find out what people's customers or stakeholders are thinking. But then because of our kind of marketing capabilities, and strategy capabilities, we will always tell people or suggest to people, this is what people are saying. You could communicate in this way to get it across, to get your point across. So an example of that is in COVID, 
we did some research into vaccine take-ups for a local authority. So we understood and got behind the hesitancy of having vaccinations, for example, at the time. And then we were able to help them with their communications messages about how they could then communicate more effectively with people and also about enabling that people stick to restrictions. So we soon realised that there was a lack of empathy going out in in communications, whether it's government or local government. So we brought, we suggested that actually more empathetic um, communications would work well. So thank you for, you know, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for wearing a mask, that kind of thing. So it's really interesting to actually take the research and then suggest how people then communicate or what they do with that data as well. Because actually, I remember at the time speaking to people about research and then saying, look, I've got a cupboard full of research reports. I need somebody to tell me what it actually means and what to do about it. And I was like, that's us. That's what we can do. <laughs> well, that's exciting. You know, from somebody who is a researcher, I do like that. Now, you're, And I also like the way that you're humanising that kind of um, approach to research and market research, that it's not just about producing the report and putting it on the shelf. It's about using it and trying to, in, the, in your case, um, better inform public policy. Now, you found, didn't you, and this led to, a really interesting and I suppose quite exciting development for your business, MMC, is that you started to see there was a blocker, didn't you, within SMEs around um, around mental health. Can you tell me a little bit more, Natasha, about, about that area of work? Yeah, definitely. So that was in lockdown. I felt that every conversation I was... That happened in lockdown where a lot of conversations I was having with fellow business owners was very much about their mental health. And for the first time, I saw people opening up that wouldn't have opened up before. They were talking about how they were feeling. And I was feeling more anxious. And, you know, obviously a lot of us were. And I thought, well, if me and my peers, friends, business owner friends are feeling like this, well, surely others are too. So I felt like I wanted to do something to help. And I wanted to find out if other people were feeling like this, what they might want to help them. So I put out in 2020 a survey for business owners to take part in, business owners, business leaders, SMEs to find out how they were feeling. And of course, more people than usual were saying that they were presenting with more anxiety or depression. Some people had been diagnosed since the lockdown with more kind of generalized anxiety, et cetera. But the one thing that I was really interested in is what coping mechanisms had helped and what they had turned to, which might not be helping. And that was, of course, comfort eating, drinking. But people were saying things like exercise was helping. But the interesting thing was actually peer-to-peer support was helping. So I think it was about 55% of business owners said that when they spoke to other business owners or friends, they felt better for it. And there was a lot of data and information in the media about how employees were feeling working from home and their mental health and and the stress. But actually, I felt like there was nothing out there about how business owners were feeling. And they were in this survey, they were saying to us, it was things like stresses of cash flow, forecasting, um, the the pressure of looking after other people's salaries and incomes that were stressing them out to all this kind of stuff, which was really piling on the pressure. So I went out with that. And then in 2022, I thought, well, it hasn't really gone away. I'm still talking to people who sometimes seem a little bit more 
high dose or anxious than they would have been before. I wonder what's going on. The one interesting thing I found from the 2022 data was that even though a high number of people still said that they got support by talking to other people, more people were saying that they were not wanting to socialize as much. So there's been an increase in social anxiety. So of course, when all the networking events and business events opened up again, you know, those who were like, yes, can't wait to get out there and see people. There's also this kind of group of people who are like, oh my God, not only do I have to go and put business clothes on, but I have to talk to people in a room. Oh, I haven't done that for a while. But actually those people had also said when they do connect with people, they feel better for it. So I thought that was quite an interesting observation. I also, yeah, and I, I also wanted to know whether people were more risk averse, having been what we've been through, you know, and what we're going through again now, potentially. And that data I'd like to dig into a little bit more because it didn't seem that that many people were risk averse. But when I have talked to other organizations that look after startup companies, uh, there is some information that seems to say that they are a little bit more risk averse than what they were. How did the, because we've had John McCabe on, 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 onto the podcast, of course, um, Chief Executive of the Northeast Chamber of Commerce. And, and I, I remember when we met, it was a boiling summer's evening when we were at the Chamber Business Awards. And there was a lot of people sort of whispering, saying, isn't it great to be out? But actually, based on the data that you've just told me, maybe maybe they didn't. How did, it, how did people like John and the Newcastle United Foundation, these kind of core groups, respond and when you told them this data, was it something that they were interested in? Was it something that we were going to support you with? Or did they just think it was a bit of an anomaly? Yeah, they were quite interested. And I had a really good conversation, actually, which I'm going to continue with um, a lady called Jenny Smith, who runs a company called Netno. So she's actually, um, and she's actually doing a PhD into networking, and she's she's got a whole theory behind networking. And she was particularly fascinated with it as well. So it's definitely something that we're going to dig into the data a little bit more. And you know what, it might have stopped because this 2022 research was very much done when people were just starting to go out again. So I'd be interested to know is, is that still there? Or, you know, is everyone returned back to normal? I would imagine it's still there a little bit. When you do projects, it's more holistic. You're not just doing a little slice of it. You know, you're in this case, you've collected data, you have digested that and you've gone to people, key people in your network who can potentially disseminate that further, generate awareness for, in this case, the concerns around business owners, not just employees. Are there any practical steps that MMC has taken or a toolkit that's been created at all to to better support any of these businesses? Or is that something that's on the horizon? No, we did create a toolkit actually to point people in the directions of different things that could help with some of the issues that were raised. But I think the next phase for me, which I would love to do more of, and I am having conversations where I can, is speaking to business support providers. So for example, over the last few years, there's been pots of ERDF money that have helped organizations scale up their businesses. So you go on a course and you can learn how to do cash flow, P&Ls, you can learn how to do marketing. You can even learn how to market your business on TikTok. Um, You can do a business model canvas. You can do all this fun stuff, but I don't see enough courses about building resilience working on your confidence levels, dealing with anxiety and running a business or anything like that. And for me, it seems like such an obvious thing that if you've got a group of business owners 
And some of them have anxiety or depression or fear or whatever it is about kind of taking it to the next level. If you work on those areas, surely that's going to remove barriers to growth. Surely if we help business owners in their heads, it will help them. And you look at on business owners' bookshelves, they don't have books up there necessarily about getting the numbers right. They'll have things like Brené Brown, Dare to Lead, or Simon Sinek, Find Your Why, uh, Leaders Eat Last, or whatever, you know, to actually say, this is how to be an effective leader. And a lot of that is in the kind of the mental mindset. So surely, as a nation, if we help business owners with their mental well-being and their mindset, we'll have an even more successful economy, I think. Oh, anyway. No, I thoroughly agree. And this podcast is delivered and funded by the Help to Grow Management Programme delivered um, by Northumbria University, which is at its core around business resilience. And I think that is something which I think you're touching on. But, you know, Natasha, the, the title of the podcast is Why Small Business Matters. And I was going to ask you that a little bit earlier on, what your interpretation of that phrase is, because you've worked for so many businesses and many of them, as you say, have been small. But in your opinion, why do small business matter? I think that small businesses matter because we can. the power of many small businesses is huge. And through collaborating with others, it makes it more exciting. It puts more into the economy. It's, I think it spreads the risk, the risk, spreads the load further. I think why small business matters is also around flexibility and organizations that can actually be um, quite family centered as well. So really getting to know your employees or your team members and their extended families and everything else. So you actually, I think there's a, you know, family businesses are great to work with and for as well. And, and many of those start as small businesses. So I think there's a lot to be said for small businesses. I don't ever feel like, I don't ever feel like, oh, I'm too small. In fact, it's taken me seven years to be proud of being a small business and not having had to go through that massive scale-up piece to have lots of heads to feel like a significant business because I know that the work we're doing is looking after other people, other suppliers, um, members of the team, associates that we work with day to day. So, you know, it, a small business can be quite powerful in its own way. Many thanks to today's guest, Natasha McDonough from MMC. To find out how Northumbria University can help your business, head online to northumbria.ac.uk forward slash help to grow, where you can find out more about the Help to Grow Management Programme and the broader support the university offers to small businesses. Don't forget to check out previous episodes on the podcast series, and we will catch you next time on Why Small Business Matters. Why Small Business Matters.